Hi Richard, what are you up to? Oh, hello Emily. I was just checking up on the download numbers for our last episode. Oh my gosh, Richard, you're obsessed with stats. Well, maybe, but but how else are we going to get rich? Um, How are we going to get rich? Well, look, I mean, finance is your speciality, but I guess it's through all the downloads. But we're giving them away for free? We're doing what? Yes, Richard, it's a podcast. People listen for free, but they still get something from it, and we enjoy making them. This is weird. So so what you're saying is we, we can create value by giving something away for free? Yep. And we've got a guest who knows all about that. episode we're joined by Claire who's worked in a number of public sector and voluntary roles including some senior roles in the civil service. Hello Claire and welcome to If It's Hurting It's Not Working. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well thank you it's really great to to be here. So thanks for joining our conversation about why we work, how we work and what makes a great job. Yes so Emily and I have talked a lot about our experience of working in the private sector so we thought it'd be interesting and, and helpful for our listeners to get a different perspective. And we spoke recently to to our own CEO. So we thought, by contrast, our listeners could hear from a woman with leadership experience. And also because in the civil service, you worked on a number of initiatives that people will have heard of, like the Millennium Dome and Northern Ireland Peace Process and latterly Brexit. And you worked with politicians whose names will be familiar to our listeners. But first, questions. So let's get back to the start. Claire, what was your first job? So my first job was working in the local ironmonger's shop. Uh, which was like an Aladdin's cave. It's just full of every possible gadget and household appliance DIY thing, fishing accessories, maggots, everything. Um, And I was surrounded by some really wise and knowledgeable people and I learned a lot doing that. And then my first job after university was as a locum epidemiologist working for the local health authority in Essex. And I did that for a year and then I joined the Northern Ireland Civil Service Fast Stream. Wow. Say that again. A locum, as in stand-in, epidemiologist. So what did that involve? That that caught my attention there. So that, that was about supporting the director of public health in looking at disease management and preventative health within the area. So wow. it's a That's word that people funny. become more familiar with over the last couple of years with COVID Indeed. than they ever were before. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, and I think that's probably what triggered me there was the epidemiologist word. So I should imagine that was very interesting. Yeah, it was definitely definitely was got a lot out of it and was interesting. I went on to do a master's in epidemiology afterwards. And as a result of the last couple of years, people can now not only pronounce what I did, but have some clue what it might be about. So that's that's been one of the few positives of COVID. Fantastic. Okay, so so what's been your favourite job? And, And if you can maybe tell us why that was. It's quite a tricky one because I think I've been very lucky and I've had a lot of jobs I've really, really loved doing. And I was thinking about what makes a good job. And for me, it's a combination of having a boss who's supportive and and inspiring, a role that feels interesting and worthwhile and where you feel you're making a valuable contribution. And you're working with a good team of colleagues and staff. And most of my jobs, in fact, all of my jobs have had at least one of those ingredients. Some have had several, but there are only a few that have had all of them. And the one that stands out most was when I was head of constitutional policy and legislation at the Northern Ireland office. I started this role during the period of direct rule that ran between 2002 and 2007. And for those of you who haven't followed the Northern Ireland political process, direct rule is the period when devolution was suspended. And in this role, I was a key part of helping to support the talks to get devolution back up and running and planning ahead to devolve policing and justice. I had a line manager who was, he was the second most senior civil servant in the department, an exceptionally brilliant person, deep integrity, great sense of humour, enormous brain, extremely knowledgeable, deeply wise, but also very human and very supportive. So it was fantastic working for him. The the work itself was extremely stimulating. It played to my strengths. It combined knowledge of a whole lot of deeply nerdy things about the workings of the Northern Ireland constitutional framework. People were actually interested in me being nerdy. So that was useful. Um, But also practical delivery as well. And I led the organisation of the summit talks at St Andrews in 2006 and managed several bills through Parliament. 
I felt valued by ministers and by my colleagues. I genuinely felt part of a team. And that was so important because we were working under a huge amount of pressure. 14 hour days were, were very much the, the, the average for the period. So feeling part of it, a team really mattered. And on top of all of it, I had the most wonderful team of staff working with me who were excellent at their jobs and dedicated to the to the task, brilliant at supporting each other and me through what were extremely difficult times. So that that was my favourite job. And I think when you're doing a job that's particularly a difficult job, it's really vital, isn't it, that you've got that team around you that are so supportive and engaged and easy to get along with. Yes, and that you can that you can talk to frankly, there's no sort of delicate treading on eggshells to interact with people. You can you can have a an open exchange with them and and they can speak to you openly as well. I think that's really important. Yeah, I like the way you framed it with your three ingredients for your great job. Yeah, it'd be interesting as we talk to more people to hear if, if that's similar for them. And what was it, Claire, that led you to make your career choice within the civil service? Well, I suppose I've always I was been good at solving problems and have always had a very strong sense of public duty and I felt that the civil service was a way of bringing both of those together. And it genuinely was throughout all, all the jobs I've done, I, I felt I was able to do that. I've been really privileged to work on some really important pieces of public policy and events over the years. You mentioned the Northern Ireland political process. That's, that was the biggest. But I also worked on the Iraq inquiry, the Millennium celebrations and, and Brexit, obviously very topical. And I felt that I was able to use my talents to make a difference to the world. And that, that was important. And it sounds terribly grandiose to say that, but I think everybody in the civil service Everyone in the public sector makes a difference to the world in in different ways. And being able to do that is really important. Yeah, it must certainly give you a great sense of job satisfaction when you know that like even the little things that you do every day within your role really do make a bigger difference. Yeah, yeah, I think I think definitely. Yeah, that context, I think, the meaning, I suppose, that, that our work has for us, but, but yeah, the, the wider context so that even if it is just answering an email or doing something really mundane if, if it's in the service of something that's more important and something that you're really aligned with and you passionately believe in then surely that's got to be something that helps you keep going yes yes yeah. it's very motivating so one thing that that emily and i were keen to ask you about because it, you know it's outside our experience was what it's like to work on programs and in jobs with people that are in the public eye well, I suppose to start with, it's a bit startling. And I can remember the first time I heard a minister read out in Parliament something that I drafted in his speaking notes, thinking, wow, those are my words. I wrote that. And then seeing those words quoted in the newspaper is really quite surreal. Mm. But looking mm. back, it's it's really amazing how quickly you get used to to that. And it becomes it becomes normal and you don't you don't notice the, the sort of, I suppose, celebrity dimension to it. And it, you just think it is normal to be working on stuff that appears in the news and that that you know stuff about. I think for some people that can be a bit of an addiction. There's quite a, an adrenaline rush in in feeling that you're doing something that lots of people are interested in or are talking about. But it can also feel quite routine because it's it's your normal. It's not. Mm. I, I don't mean routine in the sense of mundane or unimportant, but it's. You you do it because the work is important, not because it's headline grabbing, and you don't you don't get kicks out of meeting people. Although meeting Larry the Number Ten Cat was quite exciting. Um, <laughs> so 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 that that sort of celebrity is is quite interesting. But I think I'd say it's been a real privilege to have the chance to see senior politicians up close and personal and get a feel for what what they're like behind the the scenes and. For most of them, they're ordinary people trying to do an unusual and difficult job in extraordinary circumstances and being able to work closely with many of the, the ministerial team, get to know them well and the Northern Ireland political parties and just forge a working relationship built on trust and, and respect. And it, it does become like a, a a normal human interaction rather than a, oh, my God, it's somebody off the telly, um, even though it is somebody off the telly. but. Yeah, I suppose you don't get that same level as starstruckness if you see your, your pop idol that you've gooey-eyed of over all your teenage years in the street. Down, you, you get that different sense, I should imagine, of it's not quite like that. It's the way I, I suppose I would imagine it. Yes. I mean, it's not it's not Todd Carty walking into to the office. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's slightly different from, from that. 
So do you think as a woman you've encountered any barriers or difficulties in your career? Yes and no and and it sort of varied. Um, Richard said you were going to ask about this and so I've been doing a bit of thinking about the degree to which things that stick in your mind are representative or not mm-hmm. because I think it can be very easy to dwell on the the negatives because the positives don't register in quite quite the same way and and generally I've had some extremely supportive senior managers who've managed very well that sort of delicate line between not treating people less favorably because of their sex but also being sensitive to the varying family commitments that that all of us have at different life stages and I'd say most of my my managers and colleagues and staff have fallen into that category than than in any others but that that doesn't mean that I haven't encountered significant challenges some of them have been overt sexism um in my case probably because it's made slightly worse because i don't i don't readily conform to gender stereotypes and i come across a bit odd at times and there really are still people and i know this won't be unique to the, the public sector by any means who see women's value as being aesthetic rather than intellectual and when we're young and vaguely attractive we have decorative value um, and people are are nice to us because of that as we age we become more invisible unless we've reached extremely senior levels and then we're harder to ignore. And I think that's changing, but the issue of invisible middle-aged women, I think is still a real issue in the in the workplace, in the health service and in society at large. I can remember one job early in my career, my manager's attitude to me, including in my annual appraisal, being significantly affected by the extent of my sexual willingness or lack of it. And this particular individual was a very senior, untouchable bully, someone who'd cultivated an external image of of being just a paragon of virtue. Nobody would have believed me if I'd said anything about it. There was just nothing I could do about it. But that sort of thing is extremely disempowering and damaging, however rare it is and however however much most people are not, not like that. When I became a mother in my mid-30s, I know there were a number of people very sceptical about my commitment to work. And I did feel a huge pressure to work harder than my male colleagues to try and allay those suspicions. I was back at work when my son was three and a half months old and I had to deal with comments from from colleagues that you know the world would be a better place if I spent more time with my son and less time thinking about whatever the political issue was that we were dealing with at the time again a tiny minority amongst a sea of of goodness but all these little chips just just knock away your confidence I've mentioned the the invisible middle-aged women thing and I think that is that is an issue in situations where men have equivalent age and rank would be regarded as as wise and experienced the women are just sort of well not quite not quite what we're we're after here one of the things I noticed quite a lot was there can be a tendency when you're thinking about developmental opportunities and extra responsibilities for female staff to be given extra responsibilities that broaden their experience but also broaden their their workload and and make their job larger whereas male staff would quite often be given a job that is more senior temporary promotion and that allows them to demonstrate their capacity at a more stretching level and strangely enough if you're doing the job of two people you're much less likely to shine than if you're doing a single job designed for one person at a at a more level so I think there is a bit of a pattern of that that doesn't happen all the time obviously but where it does happen it puts the person who's in the, the the widely stretched job backwards because they're not going to be shining as much as the the person in the, the single job and there are other sorts of barriers that I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected at all and I, I know that the stereotype of if a woman makes a point in a meeting it's accredited to a man and I've experienced that and each time it happens I think surely that can't be happening yeah. I, I must I must have missed that but but it does then there's the, the the sort of physical power of the male voice. If you're in a heated discussion, the voices that carry the furthest are the loudest and deepest voices. And strangely enough, that's not me. But the only thing, I, and I've done this very rarely, I can sing high. And, <laughs> and so sometimes the only way to break in is to do that. Yeah. Um, and I know that in those situations, it's not that people were trying to drown me out, but they were expecting that any voices would be of a similar volume to theirs so they're not noticing the other one and ironically I found that on teams I was interviewing with a couple of male colleagues interviewing for a senior judicial role the other week I was chairing the panel and I realized that if 
the two male interviewers spoke over each other, I could hear both of their voices. If I was speaking and one of them interrupted me, my voice was cut out and the only thing that was broadcast was theirs. Again, I thought, I must be imagining this because why on earth, why on earth would there be a misogyny chip within Microsoft? <laughs> and so I, I mentioned it to them and they said, no, you must be imagining it. But then we did a test and it was real. They could interrupt me whenever they wanted. I couldn't interrupt them and they could talk over each other and hear both voices and nobody was cut out. And I thought that was interesting for two two reasons. One, because actually it's dreadful if that's yeah. what's happening in package, but also they didn't believe me when I pointed it out. Yeah. They thought I must be imagining it. Uh, they did believe me once once we had demonstrated it, but they wouldn't take my word for it. It was paranoia. Once you'd proven that actually like this does happen, did their mindset change a little bit and were they a bit more aware of when they were talking over you, just thinking that you were doing this for an interviewing panel, like the perception of the candidate that was coming along, if they've got two male egos, just label them as that for now, within a room and yourself. Yeah, I'm just intrigued as to the perception that would give off. Well, I think the nice thing about doing things on a an interview basis on Zoom is or, or Zoom or Teams is that we have prearranged who's going to be tackling what things. Right. But it's it's when we come to our panel discussion afterwards and we're talking about the candidate. Mm. Okay. Because yes, you're right. That that would be dreadful for for the candidate. But but we we have our own moments to speak in the interview. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, no, that makes sense. To avoid that. So yes, they did modify their behaviour by looking more instead of relying on their ears to hear things. But they were looking. So if I was waving at them like that they'd say do you know i think i think clara might be trying to come in there she might be trying to say something it's possible we've talked over her so yes they did uh, not everybody would and those are two very very decent individuals who, who were horrified once they discovered that this was happening even though they hadn't believed me when i first raised it and i suppose the other thing just to to think about in terms of the impact of being a being a woman, and apologies if I'm talking too much, the, the question of stereotypes, which ironically seem to be becoming more rather than less ingrained. I think for those of us who don't come out of central casting, the world doesn't really know what to do with us except push us back towards the stereotypes. I'm not a very feminine person, but it doesn't mean that I'm not a very valid person. And mm-hmm. um, I think the more we can allow people to be their authentic selves rather than assume that because they have a particular body they're going to have a particular type of brain and I think that's the the, the biggest biggest risk I think to, to women is people making assumptions about their their wishes in life and their their intellectual capability and the the sorts of things that interest them because we're all different basically and I think as well unless you are able to be your own authentic self you're not going to perform at your best either because you're you've got barriers up and you're going to be a bit conscious of how you're performing and things like that so I mean You've covered up some really good areas there and some of those barriers that you've experienced I can relate to throughout my career, particularly around the, the woman front and having to work that little bit harder because you're a mum and you're going to dash out the door at four o'clock. So you need to fit eight hours in to, to six to be able to, to show that you can do that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think we're, I think we've come a really long way with the gender pay gap reports that come out from organisations that the government has implemented and all, all schemes like that, it's it's starting to bring the inequality down, but it's very clearly still still a problem within all organisations, I think, which is quite alarming. Yeah, and I think the the sorts of attitudes that, that are so ingrained need to be challenged right from the cradle if people grow up thinking that we're all equal. Mm that's that's really important but I, I think that even even now people don't and and that's that's really quite sad it's a way of educating our generations that are coming up through the ranks isn't it Richard I think you're trying to get a word in edgeways between these two women <laughs> no I, I'm delighted actually because I it was the one thing I feared was that you wouldn't get a chance to speak Emily because Claire and I know each other yeah I, I as, as the male techie in this conversation I think two things really one is I need to get on the blower to Satya Nadella at Microsoft and tell him to, to sort it out I, I think the, um, the the issue actually potentially is you know you get a lot of male developers so you know maybe they're just not getting the right voices in there but I mean that's that's potentially letting men off the hook there you know clearly it, it's not working effectively so that's, that's it's an interesting point that you make it's not unique to, to tech and you can completely understand if things have only been tested for 
for one type of voice or one skin colour. I'm obviously not in a an audio programme, but all the hand activated things, if, if those work for people with pink skin, not for people with brown skin, mm. then they're not much good. It doesn't mean yeah. people haven't tried to test them. They've just not thought, actually, what is it that the sensor is picking up? And I think you see a lot of that in healthcare as well, that the default male body is what mm. has been studied for generations. And women's bodies have been regarded as in effect, defective male bodies, as opposed to something that is unique in their own right. The focus and emphasis on women's health issues and the degree to which women's pain is dismissed by the medical profession, the study upon study that picks up on things like that. If, if a man goes to the doctor with problems with pain, he'll be given something for it. If a woman goes, they'll be told, well, it's just, just normal for being a woman, come back later if it's still a problem but really you should be able to cope with it how many women have put up with with that throughout their their lives and that that is still a very very common issue it certainly is I can relate to that one very much at the moment without going into too many personal details but yeah you 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 chip away at the doctors sometimes and they're like oh we'll come back in six weeks or a month or, or whatever and yeah the problems still go on for years and years so yeah interesting Okay, I mean, so different, but I suppose along the same lines. A lot of things you've worked on, you've already alluded to this earlier, a lot of the jobs that you've worked on have been their respecters of the clock. So I wonder how you'd managed to deal with those demands and how that impacted on your work-life balance. I would say I've dealt with them badly. It's impacted negatively on my work-life balance, and I probably only survived doing it because I have an extremely supportive husband who isn't so up himself that that he had to 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 be the one who was who was going out and and doing the high flying career i mean he's had he's had a great career Hmm. but he was the one who who spent time at home with our son when he was a baby rather than me and he was much better at it than than i was my son now now an adult claims that i wasn't an awful mother when he was growing up but i i don't know how much he's viewing that with rose-tinted spectacles so the combination of the jobs I was doing, the fact that I had I had postnatal depression, which wasn't diagnosed till he was three, wow. didn't really didn't really help me to think about work life balance in necessarily the the most um, balanced way. I I think I've probably managed it by juggling things and minimising my social life. That's what has tended to get cut out over the the years. I've done a couple of regular music things, but not really socialised much other than that. But I have work has been a huge important part of my identity and I've often found myself in places where it's where it's really difficult to, to to break off. I was interested the the recent public debate about Stella Creasy taking her baby into the Commons chamber for a <clears throat> for a vote. And obviously I wasn't a politician and every time I had to go into Parliament it was not to vote and, and, and my role is completely different. But it did remind me of one time I'd been scheduled to take a half day so I could meet my son from school and my husband was away overnight and so it was it was actually really important I did take this half day and I, and I planned it as a half day so there was no you're not going to be able to get away at three but just as I was due to finish in the morning we had a call to say there was a last minute debate in the House of Lords and they needed someone with my expertise to go in and sit in the officials box to brief ministers so if you're familiar with looking at Parliament there's, there's a little boxed off area in both the Commons and the Lords that's where officials sit and they can sort of brief ministers who pass notes um, to them in a in a very sort of non-digital way and I was really torn there because obviously I planned to 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 get off to to the school but I was also the only person in London at the time who had the knowledge and expertise to do it my boss and my deputy were both in Belfast doing something so it needed to be me or we had to let ministers down so while I was thinking what do I do about this my, my brilliant PA Deborah said well look why don't you go and get him bring him to parliament I'll take him down to the canteen you go and do your stuff there and then you can pick him up afterwards it's not ideal but but we'll manage it yeah so real surreal dash across London in a taxi grab this five-year-old and explain to him this is what's going to happen you you know Deborah you like Deborah and then we just sort of rushed in in through St Stephen's Gate met Deborah I just had to dump him and run and just got there at the time the the um, debate was starting is that a good way to parent and manage your work-life balance probably not but um it was a way of coping in the circumstances and um 
if nothing else, it gave him a, a good story to tell, <laughs> show and tell, or whatever they did at school the next the next day. And you know, let's face it. I mean, we don't. Yeah, our experiences in in life are rarely paragons. You know, we don't always get things right. But it you know, it does sound to me like that's a that's a fantastic way of dealing with a, an impossible situation. So, uh, and as you say, I guess everybody got something out of it. Yeah, and um, and it was it was the right thing to do at the time. Um, just more recently, thinking about work life balance, I've been forced to think about it a bit more because I've been struggling with long COVID fatigue and breathlessness and um brain fog says she forgetting what the word is for the last couple of years and given my my life has generally been the the life of the Duracell bunny I find that quite difficult but sometimes enforced pacing is is useful just to get you to to appreciate how much you can achieve if you plan things carefully and also the value of of rest and sustaining you to be able to continue going Mm. yeah I think sometimes when you are forced to do that reset and I think a lot of people that were forced to work from home or furloughed during the pandemic probably had that opportunity to reassess and and just take a step back it would be interesting to see how many people post pandemic have stuck to the things that they said they weren't going to pick back up again while they were in it yeah Um, i know we certainly haven't picked up the ironing again unless we're going down the the very smart route with shirts and things so that's one thing that we we've not missed from the pandemic but you know and it's it's a simple thing like that but on a sunday evening that used to be your whole evening taken out with just doing the ironing for the week and actually the grand scheme of things nobody's commented on any of our household that we've walked down the street and gone god they're wearing a really creased jumper or that 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 t-shirt needs an iron so yeah i can understand what you're saying of that that forced reset so Claire, what can you tell us about being a leader in the civil service? I suppose it sort of depends what, what you want to know, because I guess in many ways it's it's quite similar to being a, a leader in many other organisations. You need to support and empower your people to deliver whatever the challenge is before you, and you draw on the usual management and leadership tools. You aim to add value and, and adding value rather than creating another layer of bureaucracy is important. In terms of the differences, I suppose one of the obvious ones is the relationship with ministers. Mm. So the elected ministers set the policy direction and then it's the, the job of the civil service to implement it and to advise ministers on the consequences mm-hmm. and policy choices that they have as a result of the direction they've set. And so in that respect, a leader in the civil service, even right at the top, is not the person calling the shots because that's the job of the minister and it's rightly the job of the minister. And if you haven't mm-hmm. experienced that, it probably sounds a bit disempowering. I would say in my experience, that's that's not generally how it feels, but I can see intellectually why it's, it looks a bit odd. My interest in solving problems is what's at the, the, the heart of that. And I think a lot of people in the civil service are, are motivated similarly. It's about identifying the challenges and the obstacles that exist in the path of the policy direction, working out creative solutions that either avoid the obstacle or that find ways of mitigating the problems that, that you rise and helping ministers understand the consequences of what they're wanting to do and enabling them to make informed choices. So you're, you're providing that sort of it's leadership from below for ministers mm-hmm. and you're helping your staff to be able to do similarly and that that civil servant minister partnership is a really important one it can work really really well and really positive working relationships with a number of secretaries of state and i know it's it's amusing just to to caricature it with the yes minister and the thick of it sketches and, and i won't deny there's there's some truth in both of those as reflections of reality but the real reality is generally a lot more joined up and constructive mm-hmm. and based on the, the core principles of the civil service code, honesty, integrity, objectivity and impartiality. And those are really, really important. Another difference might be, and I say this not knowing the private sector well enough, might be the sheer variety of roles within the civil service. Again, those comedy shows are focused on the ministerial private office setup because that's where you've got the, the minister and civil service playing off each other. But the, with the civil yeah. service, you could be doing any number of things. You could be writing legislation on pretty much any subject under the sun. I think the the weirdest one I ever did was the sheep and goats identification order. Um, <laughs> it was all about double, double tagging in the ears. So you could be doing that. You could be working in a benefits office. You could be planning a response to a feared terrorist attack. You could be developing a new tax policy. You could be managing the housing for the armed forces personnel. You could be dealing with the transport network. 
negotiating international treaties, you could be coordinating parliamentary business, conducting an inquiry into an armed conflict, you could be working on drainage and flood defences, you could be dealing with disease prevention, you could be working in HR, in finance or as an economist, and the list is pretty much endless. Yeah. And the caricature of the dull paper shuffler is about as far from the truth as you can you can get. The final big difference I'd say about working in the civil service and in leading in the civil service is that unlike in the private sector, we don't choose our customers and perhaps more importantly, they don't choose us, which is why customer is quite often a really bad word to, to choose in terms of the, the relationship. And that different relationship with the people we serve affects how we do the job. People can't just choose to abide by a different set of laws because they don't like the ones we make for them. They can't choose to go to a different prison because they don't like the one that we've provided for them. They can't choose to pay different taxes mm. or rely on a different benefits provider because that's it. They can't vote in different elections. They have no choice but to go with the, the monopoly supplier that is us. And sometimes that means they don't actually like us very much at all. And they might even hate us and they might be entitled to feel like that. So leading within the, the civil service is about supporting your staff, be, being thick skinned enough to cope with that, but supporting your staff to, to deal with that and think about the, the dynamic with the, the people for who, for want of a better word, we might call customers, what they are entitled to expect from mm -hmm. us. I probably haven't answered your question very well. No, I think you have, mm. because you've given us an insight into to what it's like to be a leader within the civil service. I don't know whether it's instructive to have a conversation, but it, it occurs to me that unusually, in, in the, and certainly the period you were in the civil service, you had the, the long sweep of Labour being in charge and then another long sweep of the Conservatives. Well, there was, the, there was the coalition, but but yeah, whereas normally it had been that kind of chop change, chop change, chop change uh, up until that point. I, I don't know if that made any difference. I think it did. And in fact, when I joined, when I started in the civil service, it was coming to the end of the, the lengthy Thatcher Major yeah. era. Mm -hmm. So, so there, there's been three long periods of not quite single party, as you say, the, the, the coalition did, did make a difference. But I think that is less healthy for the world than a, a more frequent change, mm. because you have a, a risk of you have a risk of the civil service becoming too institutionalised to the, the party yeah. in power. And even if that doesn't happen, and the civil service code is, is there to, to mitigate against that or militate against that, even if it doesn't happen in practice, the opposition are likely to suspect that that's what's happened. Mm. And I think that both times I've witnessed a change of government like that, there's been a little bit of suspicion that you were too close to the to the last lot. And it's, it's ironic having been through it twice because I've obviously been too close to too many previous ones yeah. but I think that that can be very difficult that can be very difficult for people at the at the top if incoming ministers think that their most senior official is on the side of the opposition yeah I, I don't actually know of any situations where where that has been the reality but I can completely see why it it has felt like that so that does make a, a difference whereas if you've got more regular change there's there's less time to build up the suspicion and there's yeah. less time for any problems that are going to emerge to emerge So, Claire, I understand you decided to make a career change in the middle of your working life. And I wondered if you could talk to us a bit about that and what drove that decision and how it was for you. Well, a very difficult decision. And leaving the civil service and leaving the Northern Ireland office after so many years genuinely felt like a bit of a bereavement. Uh, that's the only way I can describe it. Mm. It's also quite difficult to describe my motivation without appearing sort of controversial or political about my reasons and I'm not trying to do that but I'll try and give you a bit of flavour of the, the context and, and what mm. influenced me. So I was working at the time on Brexit implementation and in particular trying to find ways of doing this in a way that didn't compromise the Good Friday Agreement. Right. It might not surprise you to know that was a bit of a challenging conundrum with yeah. no easy answers. Imagine. <laughs> but you know I was used to difficult challenges Admittedly, I hadn't quite expected to find myself explaining such basic things to people like there are no rivers that flow between Northern Ireland and England. No, really, they are separate islands and um, they don't touch at all. Um, once upon a time, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, doing that once was a bit eye opening. Doing it on repeated occasions was was quite shocking. But a challenge is a challenge. So I, I could cope with that. My work life balance was particularly awful. Again, I was used to that and I could see the importance of what I was doing. And this this is a period during which my mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And 
trying to make sure that I was there for her in her last weeks, whilst also trying to, I mean, we talked about work-life balance earlier, trying to predict when those last weeks would be so I wouldn't find myself going there and then having to come away again mm-hmm. was very difficult. She she was enormously supportive of the work I was doing, believed it was really important for Northern Ireland, but trying to, to juggle that was, was a challenge. But again, I was used to dealing with bad work-life balance and I, I made that work. I knew I was doing a good job. I was valued by my staff and by my colleagues in other departments, but I, I didn't feel valued or supported by the head of my department. That's our equivalent of a chief executive. He gave the impression of viewing Brexit as a rather annoying sideshow from the main work of the department. And that influenced the degree to which he and ministers engaged with it and also the share of the department's resources that were put to it. My team and I were significantly overstretched. Mm. We, we were so overstretched. And that phenomenon I was talking about earlier of, oh, it's a great development opportunity. You're so, so, so stretched that way. Whilst seeing male colleagues getting temporary promotions to test themselves at a higher level, high profile jobs that that were designed to be done by one person at a time. Whilst I was just, my development opportunity was just to be stretched so thinly over too wide a base that was marginalised within the department, despite the the very obvious unique challenges that Brexit presented for Northern Ireland. Mm. There didn't feel like a sense of being in this together, to borrow from the more recent soundbites. It's just more like being dumped on massively with insufficient resources, minimal support, unrealistic expectations and fairly limited interest. So I felt burnt out and demotivated. I saw no prospect of that ever changing. And I was trapped in that role because it needed my knowledge and expertise. And there was no way the department was going to to release me to another job. I couldn't apply to another job within the civil service because they'd say we couldn't possibly release you. You're really important to this role at the moment. Even that I could cope with. The thing that finally tipped me over the edge was a sense that we were being encouraged to sanitise our advice to ministers in a way that glossed over very significant problems that were inconvenient to the narrative that Brexit was a good thing. And I felt uncomfortable this was going against the principle in the Civil Service Code about not ignoring inconvenient facts or relevant considerations. And that's a fundamental part of being objective. Obviously, ministers don't have to accept our advice or analysis. That's entirely their prerogative. But it's really important that we're free to give the advice, warts and all, Mm -hmm. so they can make their decision in a fully informed way. Mm -hmm. So that was what finally tripped the switch for me. I'd worked so hard to live up to the civil service value of impartiality, despite finding that painfully difficult on the subject of Brexit. But I also felt I was coming under pressure to compromise the other three values, honesty, integrity and objectivity. And without those values, I couldn't see a way to continue as a civil servant. So I took the only step I could, which was handing in my resignation. And yes, it felt like a bereavement, but it also felt like a huge burden was lifted from my shoulders. And just thinking about it, that I don't know whether, Emily, you're possibly not even old enough to to, to remember it. And and Richie, it probably wouldn't have appealed to you. But the film Labyrinth at the end, when Jennifer says to the Goblin King, you have no power over me. That's what it felt like just being able to say, actually, I can't get out of this. The only way I can make this pain stop is to leave. And that is the only thing that's in in my gift. So I did that as a bit of a step into the to the unknown. But I've built up a positive and exciting portfolio where I can change the world in different ways. And it was definitely the right thing to do. Yeah, so you're—I mean, you're—you're you're the living embodiment, I think, of our podcast title. You know, if it's hurting, it's not working. You—you you understood that, and you—you you stepped away before, I guess, anything worse happened. Yes, yes, it—it it really was hurting. It was—it was actually painful, mm. and I couldn't continue doing it. And it was empowering, and the right decision for me to be able to step away from it. And the fact that you can see that you can still achieve your objectives of what you were doing within the civil service, but outside of that to go on and help people in a different way is the icing on the cake. And I, I guess at the end of it, to follow your empowerment of being able to leave that really painful situation. And I, I can relate to what you're saying about it being a bereavement. I've left a, a workplace before. I didn't particularly want to go, went through redundancy and things like that, and then got an olive branch at the end of police day we've got this view and it was like no you've messed me around too much now so yeah again I can relate to a lot of what you've been saying there Claire.
So we talked a lot on this podcast about the pandemic and how it's affected working for companies. Now, I mean, you're doing a lot of work now in the public and voluntary sectors, Claire, and I wonder what, what the impact has been over there. I think that's very variable depending on where in the public sector you you work and obviously that's true in the private sector as well but possibly the degrees of variation are more marked in the public and voluntary sector. Life on the frontline Covid ward is obviously going to be very different from someone doing a desk based job they can do working from home. The areas that I've been most involved in are on the the education side of things and I think Richard, you'll have seen this yourself secondhand from your wife's experience, but that the challenge of trying to provide an educational service for children in a remote way is mm. enormous. Mm. Yeah. Even if everybody has their own laptop that works and with enough broadband connection that they can they can interact and they know how to work their laptop, which you might be able to guarantee for a 15-year-old, but not necessarily for a five-year-old. Even if all of that works, it's still really difficult to engage people remotely. And it doesn't apply to everybody. Not everybody has that. In fact, most of most of the students in the schools I work in don't have that. It's an impossible task for the teachers to, to maintain contact with them. And of course, being constantly slated by, by people who are working from home and would find it quite convenient not to have their seven-year-old running around at home Mm. why can't the teachers go in and teach them well for the same reason that you can't the teacher might have their five-year-old running around while they're trying to do their their lessons for for you so i think that's that that was very difficult and i think we're all acutely aware of the the sense of digital poverty that that exists and the the yawning widening of inequality between those who did have the opportunity to to work effectively from home and those who didn't and then the idea of being back in the in the classroom, which has generally been good, and we've been back since September 2020, and then again from March 2021 after the, mm. the second lockdown. Being in the classroom obviously is so much better. I should say, by the way, I'm not there as a classroom teacher generally. I do I'm a music teacher, so I do whole class lessons with you know sort of 30 little saxophonists or clarinetists <laughs> or recorder players at a, at a time. And I know that my life, my job there is much easier than those who who are the the regular class teachers. But even even doing that is challenging. And the schools are not designed to be good on ventilation and good on distancing. Five-year-olds don't distance. And no. Teenagers mm. aren't great at distancing. And I think there's been a lot of a lot of damage with the schools are safe as a mantra without actually saying, what do we need to do to make schools safe? And because everybody yeah. everybody wants the schools to be open, everybody wants students to be in schools and teachers to be there, but you want the students and the staff to be safe as well. Yeah. The number of people who have sat there in their in their nice little home offices working there saying, go back to schools without realising how difficult it is. I am extremely conscientious about maintaining distancing and hand hygiene and so on. Both times I've caught COVID, I'm convinced it's been from from primary schools just because it's not it's not avoidable. Sure. So I think that's that's been challenging. That sort of challenge has been amplified in other bits of the public sector. I and mean, I don't have direct experience of it, but I know from talking to colleagues, things like the managing the prison service, you've got to think mm. about the safety of the prisoners. You've got to think about the safety of the prison staff. How do you continue providing that service? What, what, what happens if the prison staff get COVID? How can you continue to provide proper service for the prisoners who are, who are in there? So that's, that's hugely challenging. And then from a different side of the perspective one of my current roles is as chair of a a charity that supports children with upper limb differences and one of the the most important things that we do is bring people together so very often these children will be in a school they'll be the only person in their whole school who doesn't have a hand or who is missing one of their arms or has a, a slightly unusually shaped hand they could be the only person in their town they might never see anybody else who looks like that and our get togethers when we bring people together over fairly large large areas so that you've got people come together bring Mm. people together so they see other children who look like them they realize they're not alone and we've had two years of not being able to do that and the the impact on those children of being isolated from people who who can help them feel okay about themselves which which most of them do but it's it's difficult when you're the only one who stands out and you can see somebody who's they've got a hand like me it means that you're you're not alone and you, you have a connection we've not been able to do that and so being able to get those restarted again this year will be really important. Yeah, I can imagine it would be extremely detrimental to their well-being for that. Because like you say, they, they know they're OK, but actually 
it can be a very lonely place if you are the only person in that classroom or in that school with one arm or or like you say an, a differently shaped hand and they're at such an influential age when they're children that that can have such a detrimental effect on their whole life let alone just that moment in time throughout the pandemic so that's great to hear that you're able to start getting all of those things up and running again yeah it'll be great to, great to do that because i mean children can be can be cruel unintentionally oh, yeah. um, and you need that that contact with others to help boost your inner resilience what do you think could be your your secret of success claire uh, that rather assumes that I've been successful and that might be um I, I, I think I think we are assuming that I mean from everything you've told us today I, I would definitely say about you, yeah. some fantastic successes well that's very kind of you in the classroom at the moment the secret of my success is Beth and Badger uh, because <laughs> I find that children are far more inclined to follow instructions and want to impress a small badger than a fat middle-aged woman so th that has been <laughs> surprisingly surprisingly useful but from my professional career, thinking back on the feedback I've had, I think two quotes from people who've worked in my teams over the years. One as part of my 360 feedback said it was inspiring and refreshing to work for a boss who we know won't bullshit us. Mm -hmm. And the other one said to me one evening, Claire, we love you because you're a real person. And I think the point that comes from both of those comments, which certainly chimes with how I try to be as a leader and now as a teacher is the importance of authenticity and perhaps it does all come down to keeping it real. Great well look thanks ever so much for sharing all of your experiences and uh, with us today and for, for answering our questions it's, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you well thank you very yes. much for having me on. It, yeah it has been wonderful to have you along and perhaps we have to do a part two because I feel like Claire you've got lots of stories to tell um, that would be very inspiring and empowering for our listeners so yes thank you very much for coming along. Thank you. You were great. So thanks very much for tuning in and listening to another episode of If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. As ever, you can find us on Twitter by searching out our account at If Hurt Not Work. And we've set up a LinkedIn page. So if you just type in If It's Hurting, It's Not Working into LinkedIn, you'll find our page there. So go and give us a follow over there. And uh, I mean, obviously, you've you found our our podcast by one means or another, but it's very easy to, to, to you know, if, if you're trying to explain to your friends where to, how to do it, it's very easy. You just have to search for if it's hurting, it's not working on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you get podcasts as well as uh, as our website over at Podbean. It'd be really great if you do go to, and visit Apple Podcasts, if you would rate and review, that really helps people to find us either a good rating or particularly a review would be a help. So thanks to those people who've already done that. It's, it's, it's really helpful. And yeah, if, if you get the, t the chance to do it, that would be really appreciated. And we'll catch you next time. Yeah, yeah. Bye for now. So for this episode, we're joined by Claire, who's worked in a number of public sector and voluntary roles in I don't know why I always fluff my first words. Bear with me. Richard's pleased I do, though, otherwise he wouldn't have any outtakes. Um, and I guess, you know, from your... Let me try that again, because I, 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 instead of just reading it, I went, I went for it. Um, so we thought it'd be helpful to get a different, different perspective. <laughs> Um, I've lost my place. Where are we? Da, 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 da. There we are. Yep, bear with me a second. Alexa, do not disturb. <laughs> I just got, I don't know that you heard it, but I got motion detected at the home front door. <laughs> we don't wow. need that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we can both breathe now. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done a podcast before? Or... No. And that's what's daunting sometimes. It's pushing yourself out of that comfort zone, isn't it? Like when Richard first said to me about doing it at work, I was just like, yeah, that, that sounds great. I listened to loads of podcasts. And then the reality kicked in and went, oh, I, I've got to do this recording with him. Like, what the hell do I do? <laughs> <laughs>
the, the challenge of doing the recorded lessons over lockdown was quite a good good way of sort of stepping out of out of my comfort zone and having to do that and it was also it's quite nice because most of the people I work with are are quite young and I was able to say oh I, I can do the editing that'd be fine it's just like when we were doing coding at school and they they were expecting me to be the the stumped middle-aged not quite tech savvy so that was that was quite good but but this is another step outside the comfort zone um, yeah. and, I, and I think that I think that, you know you were talking to us earlier about this whole thing about about um you know the the invisible middle-aged woman you know the, the fact that you've got such a, a wealth of experience and you're able to bring things from your past and bring them in you know into that situation is is great so so I guess you've been able to demonstrate the you know the, the stupidity of that notion yes and it is a stupid notion but it it is a pretty prevalent notion I think increasingly and I didn't realise it till I became middle-aged myself and other people won't realise it till they become middle-aged and it's very easy to to think the world is equal until you until you get older and realise it isn't. But I think it's right with society isn't it that you go along in different like when I first started even my previous workplace it was very much oh you're the young single mum part-time and now I've moved out of that and I'm heading towards a different stereotypical bracket so yeah no I can understand what you say a lot of it makes a huge amount of sense yeah the issue being that it's well I mean it's something that that affects men of course it does but it but in a much smaller way you know we we don't have to uh, generally to do the childcare. we don't have that that break in the middle we you know there's the whole chunk of things that we don't have to put up with and so uh, so yeah it's it's still it's still tough getting older nobody wants to wants it to happen but it didn't have such a big impact on us actually that reminds me of something I was going to say but I'll just I'll just say it now anyway I think even if men do have the childcare responsibility, they aren't judged in the same way. Yeah. yeah. I remember working with one colleague who didn't work on Tuesdays because that's his day to look after his kids. I know if I'd said I'm not working one day a week or one day a fortnight because I'm looking after my kids, people would have drawn conclusions from that that were not positive. Hmm. Uh, they might have been neutral, but they wouldn't necessarily have been positive. Whereas for him, it was, isn't it wonderful that he does that? Isn't it fantastic? I Praise for for doing their <laughs> looking after your children. Yeah, that you equally produced. Yes. Like shock. You mean this is a thing? We we <laughs> sorry, I'll start going into it, and I I won't stop. <laughs> I've got I've got vast experience of my son and me just trundling on through without a dad. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you for having me on. Thank you for being interested and thank you for promising to do lots of editing. Yeah. <laughs>